Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. This is the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living, so let's jump right on in. Thanks so much for joining us. Our guest today is Rob Roy, one of the preeminent voices of cordwood building in the world and also the founder of the Earthwood Building School in West Chazzy, New York. Rob is a prolific world traveler who used to teach water skiing in the U.S., Australia, and South Africa, where he won the trick skiing event in 1967. Aside from cordwood masonry, he is a renowned teacher of megalithic stone construction and has authored 17 books on subjects ranging from natural building to mortgage-free living and world travel. This is another information-packed interview in which Rob goes into detail about cordwood construction, megalithic stone moving, mortgage-free home ownership, and a lot more. So you might want a notebook for this one. As always, don't forget to check out the show notes on the website at AbundantEdge.com to find links to all of Rob's books and the Earthwood Building School. Let's get started. I'm here today with Rob Roy. How are you doing? Hi, Oliver. Doing well here. How's things in Guatemala? Oh, it's fantastic. It's a beautiful sunny day. How are things for you in New York? Cold and sunny. (laughs) Well, at least you've got the sun. Yep. All right, so let's jump right in. You have an incredibly impressive body of work as an author, builder, and instructor. How did you get started in all of this? Well, my wife, Jackie, and I, uh, we needed uh, cheap shelter. We had been um, traveling around the country on our land search, and in Arkansas, we ended up in a little community called Weedy Rough, and they were building a log home for Joe Mayo of the Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis. And we got signed on to help uh, build this log home, but Jackie and I were about 26 years old. We had trouble hefting these 14-foot-long logs. But uh, Joe Mayo had a 1974 National Geographic magazine showing a picture of a lady and her son had built a cordwood house out in Skahegan, Washington. And as soon as Jackie and I saw that picture, we said, yeah, we can do that. He also had a copy of An Age of Barns by Eric Sloan, which showed that Cordwood Masonry dated back uh, oh, you know, over 100 years. Now I found out it, stated, it dates back 1,000 years. But uh, there were pictures of uh, Cordwood Barns in, in the Midwest that were done. Uh, so we knew it could be done, and, and that's, that's how we get first turned on to Cordwood Masonry. And uh, we finally bought land in northern New York, and uh, um, a sire that we were getting material from had seen cordwood up in Ontario. So we traveled up to Ontario, found some old cordwood buildings. People were gracious enough to take them in, to take us into their homes. And on the way home, lo and behold, there's a farmer building a cordwood masonry barn on the side of the road. And we pulled over, and he was very gracious to share with us, a, put a little extra lime in the mortar. So Jackie's writing down, put a little extra lime in the mortar. And we came home, and we built our first cordwood barn. Wow, that's remarkable. Now, so for our listeners who are unfamiliar with cordwood building, can you explain to us how the wall systems work and what the benefits and limitations are? Sure. Cordwood masonry is a style of building where you construct a masonry wall of uh, wooden elements called log ends. Instead of stone or brick or block, you use uh, the log ends, generally round or split uh, uh, logs, and they'll be the same length as the width of the wall, 12 inches, 16 inches, whatever. The special characteristic of cordwood masonry is the insulated mortar joint. There's an insulated space between the inner and outer mortar joints. 
And this is critical. This is what makes it possible to uh, heat a cordwood home. If you didn't, if you had a solid mortar joint through the wall, you would simply conduct heat right through the wall, and uh, it would be what, what Malcolm Wells used to call an energy nosebleed. So this insulated space is, is critical. And we can heat our little uh, round cordwood sauna with only 8-inch walls. Um, we can heat it in sub-zero temperatures up to 165 degrees Fahrenheit in two hours with a wood stove. Wow, that's some incredible statistics. Um, can you explain a little bit more about how this double mortar joint works? Yeah, uh, the order of events is, say you're working on the foundation, you'd, you'd lay out, you'd um, mark out where the inner and outer parts of the wall are, with a, perhaps an indelible marker, and then you'd lay down two mortar joints. On a 12-inch wall, there'd be an inner 4-inch wide joint and an outer 4-inch wide joint. Then you would pour your insulation between the inner and outer mortar joints. We use sawdust, which has been treated with lime at the ratio of 12 parts of sawdust to one part of lime. So we'll, the, the spouted bucket will pour the sawdust between the inner and outer mortar joints. Now your mortar's down, your insulation's down, you're ready to lay a log end. The log end is laid transversely in the wall, much like you stack a rank of firewood for drying. So you take your log end, you place it on the mortar, a gentle vibrating motion back and forth is all you need to get a good bond to the uh, wet mortar. And then you just continue. Um, I like to go with a random first course. That is to say, I choose a variety of different sizes of log ends in the first course. And this sends the wall into what we call a random rubble style. And we say the wall builds itself because it's when you put down the next mortar joint, you're creating little hills and valleys, and it suggests the next log end to go in there. So the wall is more or less building itself. I mean, it doesn't use, you've got to be careful that you don't uh, get too many of one size together because you might deplete that size of logins, but keep an eye on things and let the wall build itself. Now, I assume that the lime that you're putting in with the, uh, you say sawdust, is to prevent it from rotting? Yeah, it stops uh, deterioration from insect or other vermin infestation. It also will set up with the sawdust in case the wall gets wet from any reason, a driving rainstorm, uh, rain during construction, reasons you can't think of. <coughs> the lime will set up with the sawdust and give you a kind of a rigid foam product instead of a loose fill insulation like vermiculite, it becomes rigid foam. But in 99% of cases, that never happens. And, if, and I've torn corded walls apart 25 years later, for example, to expand a window into a door. I've had to take a little section of cordwood out, and that sawdust is still as good, and fresh, and light and fluffy as the day it was installed. But if it does get wet, and this, and we saw this happen once too, we took a wall down, and there was kind of like a beadboard product. The, the, the sawdust and lime had created a kind of a, a dry beadboard product um, when, when the wall got wet. But it was still acting as insulation. So yeah, the, the sawdust and lime mixture is a good idea. It's a good natural insulation. There's other things you can put in there. You could put in uh, vermiculite or hemp or uh, uh, quite a variety of things. We started by using fiberglass. We gave that up after a few months. Uh, it was Jack Henstridge in New Brunswick that told us about the sawdust, and we've been sticking with the sawdust ever since. Yeah, as someone who's worked a lot with fiberglass when I was a marine engineer, I could definitely recommend to not use it whenever possible. There are occasions where it's useful, say you're up under the underside of a girt, the girt is the timber that joins two vertical posts, and you can't pour your sawdust into that last 
mortar joint, but you can take strips of fiberglass and uh, with your gloved hands, you can stuff that fiberglass into that last space. Very hard to get the the sawdust insulation in there. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Now, what do you use for the mortar? Well, we use a variety of mortars. Um, the one that is the, the, the most forgiving that, that, that uh, people have the least problem with is a mortar that Jackie and I developed over about a two-year period. It again has sawdust in it, but this sawdust is not for installation. The sawdust we use in this mortar, and I'm going to give you the recipe in just a second, but the sawdust is used, the wet, soaked wet sawdust, not dry sawdust, and it's in there to retard the mortar set. Because if mortar sets too quickly, it'll shrink and cause cracking between the logins. So uh, we discovered that just the right amount of wet sawdust to put in there to retard that mortar set. The dry logins will suck the moisture right out of the mortar, cause a rapid drying. And when, when any cementitious material dries quickly, it's going to uh, shrink and crack. So our mix is, that, that is a good, reliable mix, very forgiving mix, is uh, has Portland cement, hydrated lime, type S builder's lime, um, soaked sawdust, and what's called mason sand or masonry sand. It's a, it's a fine uh, sand along the lines of uh, granulage, uh, you know, the sugar that you put in your coffee. So the recipe is um, nine parts of sand, uh, three parts of lime, uh, three parts of soaked sawdust, and two parts of Portland. Those are equal parts by volume. Uh, and that's a very forgiving mix. Uh, as long as you've got good sawdust, which needs to be a softwood sawdust, uh, this is a very forgiving mix and very few problems with it. Um, if you haven't got good sawdust, if all you've got is hardwood, and you might not have uh, the right kind of sawdust to use as a cement retarder. So you can use a commercial cement retarder. Uh, various companies make a product called Cement retarder, and that's a liquid that you would not put the sawdust in, but when you place the water in the wheelbarrow, a little crater of water, you'd add your three ounces of cement retarder, and that'll do the same job as the wet sawdust. So in that case, we add an extra shovelful of sand to, uh, to uh, take away from the sawdust that's been taken out, and um, that uh, uh, cement retarder will do the same job. It'll stop the water from shrinking and cracking. Excellent. That actually helps answer one of the other questions I had because um, the the only real complaint that I ever hear about cordwood buildings is that there tends to be a bit of a separation between the cordwood and the mortar. And is this the best way that you found to help to prevent that? Now, the, uh, the separation between the cordwood and the mortar is generally because of wood shrinkage. Um, uh, your mortar your mortar's going to be stable. Mortar mix I just described. And you go on. Some of the green buildings to the use of the Portland cement, and I don't blame them because I don't know if you're aware of it, Oliver, but 10 to 12 percent of the energy usage on this planet goes towards the manufacture of Portland cement. Look down in look down in Central America and South America. All the buildings are made of concrete, the concrete blocks. Can you imagine how much Portland cement has to be made to do that? 10 to 12 percent of our energy usage goes to Portland. So I have no problems with people who complain about the use of Portland. You can use lime putty mortar, which has been used for thousands of years. The Mayans used lime putty mortar in, in your part of the world, there in Guatemala. Uh, the Romans used lime putty mortar. Mr. Vitruvius, writing 2,000 years ago, uh, gives a recipe of three-part sand and one-part lime putty. 
who would make their lime from, the Mayans would use the shells off the beach and make their own lime, bake that and make their lime. So lime is very much less energy intensive than the Portland cement. There are good lime putty mortars. I, I, it's kind of, it's a more precise process. I don't want to go into it on a, on a podcast because motivation is a dangerous thing. But uh, you'll, you can find in, in my books and videos, uh, you know, uh, how, how to make a lime putty mortar. Uh, people are making a mortar with hemp, hemp, hempcrete mortar. People are using cob. Uh, I did a wall here at Earthwood with Yonto Evans and Linda Smiley, who I believe you know. And we did a cordwood wall with the, with the cob that they made. No cement in it, no lime in it, just a nice cob that uh, Linda and Yonto made with us. And uh, that worked very well. And I demonstrated this at the 2015 Natural Building Colloquium in Kingston, New Mexico. So for the natural builders, cob or lime putty mortar is an option as well. So I get back to the mortar question. I think you had another question, but I've already forgotten. Yeah, that's all right. You answered that really well. Um, so if I can just uh, summarize what you were talking about to prevent shrinkage or separation between the cordwood and the mortar, you need to select, yes. first of all, very dry wood to minimize the chance of it shrinking. That's and right. You have to that, make sure that there are retardants in your mortar, whether it be um, sawdust or industrial retardants. Um, right. And those are the main things that help to decrease the chance of it shrinking and pulling away from the cords. Okay, we're going to assume that you're going to use a mortar which is not going to shrink. So now the problem is the wood. Uh, you got to be careful because if you use a hardwood for your cordwood and you get it too dry, there's yet there's a more important problem, a more serious problem than wood shrinkage is. Are you ready for this? Wood expansion. Wood expansion is a that's a structural problem. When wood expands, it breaks the wall up. When wood shrinks, it just leaves a, a little gap around the log. You can take care of that little gap in a variety of ways, which takes takes me about half an hour in my in my classes to go over but you can take care of wood shrinkage but wood expansion is, is, is a disaster it can tilt out a round wall it can knock out stack wall corners it can uplift the girder on a timber frame that's how strong there's no resisting wood expansion look how how oak trees can break up a, a, con a concrete sidewalk there's yeah, no resisting wood expansion. so uh but with wood shrinkage on on softwoods you you dry them Quite a bit, generally six months to a year, and you won't have a problem with wood shrinkage. But on the hardwoods, you're taking a chance if you dry them too much, because then the problem of wood expansion can break your wall up. So on the hardwoods, we recommend just cut the wood into log end length, dry it for a month or so, and build with it. Because even if you were to dry it for a year, it was it's still going to shrink on you. So let it shrink. Don't let it expand. And when you're building, keep your site covered. That is to say, so that rain can't uh, fall on your wall and, ca and cause uh, uh, expansion, you know, uh, swelling of the wood. Work under cover. That's why I like to build uh, within confines of a timber frame. If you're not going to do a timber frame, if you're going to use cordwood as load-bearing, such as with a round wall with no posts in it, or perhaps what we call stack wall corners, where up in Canada they'll build crisscross corners, um, up um, a few feet and they'll put the cordwood between those corners, go up another few feet with the stack wall corners, another few feet of cordwood, but all the time they're at the mercy of the elements during construction. 
Now, you can avoid that by building a temporary cover over your work, but that that's really adds a lot to the process. Sure. Now, among all those things that you're talking about, what are some of the challenges that students have when they first get started building with cordwood wall systems? The challenges? <laughs> uh, one, one common thing we see in our workshops, and it, it kind of makes us laugh because we just don't seem to be able to impart. There's a simple order of events with cordwood masonry. You put in it, it's, it's a mantra. And the mantra is mortar, insulation, wood. Now, isn't that simple? Mortar, insulation, wood. How can you go wrong? And we'll have students, they'll put down the mortar, and then they start looking for a log end. They haven't put their insulation in. So if they find a log end that fits, they can't put it down. They picked it up. They can't put it down because they haven't put their insulation in. You've got to stick to the right order of events. And we find students that even on the second day are doing this. Usually by the third day, <laughs> they've got that worked out pretty well. By the third day, um, the students are building with good efficiency. Uh, you know, corded masonry is a time-consuming process. It's very labor-intensive. But if people come to a workshop, Aki and I can impart to them efficiencies of handling materials, and not only for speed of building, but also for good build quality, too, because uh, you don't want logins touching each other. Uh, you can conduct moisture that way you can uh, uh, it's hard to point it uh, you want to keep a good one inch mortar joint all the way around all your logs so we try to impart uh, efficiency of handling materials for speed because it is a, a slow process and also selection of logs so that you end up with a, a pleasing perhaps random rubble style which we like or if all your log ends happen to be the same size you can just build in regular courses yeah, that's some great advice so now you were talking earlier about combining techniques of timber framing along with the, the cordwood wall systems. And I know that one of your books is titled Timber Framing for the Rest of Us. Could you tell me a little bit how this type of timber yes. framing is different from normal and how it can be integrated with cordwood masonry? Oh, yes. Well, the, the timber frame, you can, you, you can use a cordwood masonry with the traditional timber framing. And by tra traditional timber framing, I mean, I mean the very finely crafted mortise and tenon joints and all the various joints that the fine timber framers uh, use, people like uh, uh, Steve Chappell and so many others that are teaching wonderful uh, old timber framing methods. But that's not the way I do it. I do it the way most contractors, owner builders, farmers do it. And that's with commonly available, inexpensive mechanical fasteners that you can get at the local uh, building supply store. So it goes quickly. You don't have to uh, have the skills, the special tools. Uh, I don't have the patience uh, for doing uh, fine timber framing. So I just screw it. And uh, I can get it up quickly and cheaply. Uh, it's strong. I put temporary wooden bracing on the side of it. Finally, the cordwood masonry will replace that uh, diagonal bracing. The cordwood masonry, when you fill a panel uh, in between the, the posts with the girt on top, that stops the building from racking. You know, we, we put the, the bracing on a timber frame to stop the building against racking, against wind shear and that sort of thing. But once the cordwood masonry has filled that panel, it does the same job. It stops the building from racking. So I think cordwood masonry works well with the, either kind of timber framing, but the kind that we teach is the, the easier um, uh, timber framing, but uh, I have the highest respect for all the wonderful, you know, Will Beamer, and I even belong to the Timber Framers Association, but I don't do it myself. Yeah, fair enough. I've got a lot of respect for those people, too. It's quite an art form. 
Now, does this mean that you tend to yeah. shy away from having cordwood walls being load-bearing? Oh, no. <laughs> In fact, the house that I'm speaking to you from right now, Earthwood, is a 2,000-square-foot round, two-story, round cordwood building. It's also earth-sheltered. Forty percent of the cylinder is earth-sheltered on the northern side. But the 60 percent, which is above grade, is all load-bearing cordwood masonry. No vertical posts in the exterior wall. So we were at the mercy of the elements while we were doing the cordwood work. We would move around these uh, special uh, frames that were kind of uh, shielded uh, us against the sun and the, and the rain and the wind while we built. And then we'd also have to be careful to cover the tops of our walls every night with uh, uh, maybe metal or plastic to shed any, any rainwater away from the site. Jackie and I always say to people now, if we were to build Earthwood again, we would build what's called a hexadecagon. That's a 16-sided building. We would put up a 16-sided post and beam frame. Many cordwood, cordwood builders all over the world have done this in the last 20 years. Um, get, our, get our roof on and work under the umbrella protection of that, uh, of that timber frame. Now, uh, one thing I don't have much experience with, we've built a few stack wall-cornered uh, uh, walls. But up in Canada, they commonly build 24-inch thick uh, cordwood walls with these stack wall corners where they'll uh, build a, a corner of crisscrossed uh, six by sixes or eight by eights, uh, go up three or four feet, uh, and then fill in, you know, stretch a line and build your cordwood to a line between the corners, go up another three or four feet, repeat, put the windows in the second course. But once again, they're at the mercy of the elements throughout the entire construction. And Oliver Murphy's law, as you know, is the year that you want to build is, is the year. In 1972 in Plattsburgh, New York, near where we live, it rained in the summertime. It rained 56 consecutive days. Well, Murphy's Law is that's the year that you want to build your building. So that's, that's why I like the timber frame. One last thing on this. It's much easier to sell the idea of cordwood masonry to a code enforcement officer if you're building within a timber frame as opposed to having to prove to him he knows nothing about her, doesn't know anything about cordwood masonry. Now you've got to sell them on the load-bearing characteristics of cordwood masonry. Done uh, authoritative tests on the mortar. Yes, it is. Uh, you, if, you've, if you're concerned about getting a, a, a build permit, then that goes a long ways towards uh, satisfying the code enforcement officer that this building isn't going to come, to, come tumbling down. By the way, there is a document out there called Cordwood in the Code. We sell it through Earthwood Building School. It's a 56-page document that covers most of the questions that code enforcement officers have. Not every single one, but it covers our value, structure, uh, flame spread, you know, fire. All these, uh, the kinds of issues that, that code enforcement officers are concerned with are covered in Cordwood in the Code. Uh, you can get it at our CordwoodMasonry.com website. Fantastic. I'll put a link to that in the show notes after I publish this as well. Could you go over real quickly some of the statistics from that document? How does cordwood perform, uh, let's say, against against fire um, for insulation value? And what type of climates would it be best to build with cordwood in? Okay, we'll do the first one first is flame spread. University of New, New Brunswick, many, many years ago, I'm thinking now 20 years ago, they did tests on cordwood walls. They actually had a 16-inch cordwood wall. They put a blowtorch on one side of the cordwood wall for an hour, 
and they couldn't get any change in temperature on the other side of the cordwood wall. Jack Henstridge, who built a, a home in, in, cord, in uh, a cordwood home up in New Brunswick, he had a, an internal fire in the house. It had nothing to do with the cordwood, but it charred. It charred the inside of the cordwood wall. But, you know, to, to have fire, you've got to have fuel, you've, you've got to have heat, but you've got to have air, too. And once you've charged, charred the ends of the logs, it goes out. It the mortar saps the heat out of the fire, and the air doesn't get past the first char area. So it's very difficult to uh, uh, burn a cordwood house down. And there are flame spread tests done by the University of Manitoba, which appear in cordwood in the code. I, I think of a situation where the ladies built a cordwood house, and uh, her neighbor says, um, would you have another cup of tea, Mabel? And she says, no, I don't think I better, my, I actually, my cordwood house is burning next door, and I, I better go and, and uh, get my things out of the house. <laughs> That's fantastic. Because so it's, what does that mean for the R value, then? If you can't get heat uh, through over an hour, yeah. how well does it keep out? Yeah, the R. Well, uh, Professor uh, Chris Dick, who's a, uh, an engineer, a PE, physical engineer up in Manitoba, has done authoritative tests um, on 24-inch corded walls with many sensors through the wall. And on a 24-inch wall, he was coming up with an R value. This is the insulated wall, as you described before, with about 1.43 per inch of thickness. So his 24-inch wall was yielding something like an R35, which exceeds any, any state or province's uh, our value recommendation for a wall. Indeed. That's impressive. So let's shift gears here just a little bit. I know that over the last few decades, you've worked all over the world as a builder and instructor. How have those experiences informed your building methods and your teaching style? Well, I've been more an instructor than a builder. Um, of course, uh, building is part of instructing. You have, before you can, the students can do it, you have to demonstrate how to do it. So we're, we're building to that extent. But uh, I've, I've never actually been a cordwood contractor, with one exception. I did one cordwood contract once with a friend many, many years ago. But uh, generally, the cordwood work I do is on our own places, uh, or when we do workshops, uh, uh, all our neighbors on Murtaugh Hill, where we live, have cordwood places now because Jackie and I always need work, you know, workshop venues to conduct workshops. So there's cordwood saunas, cordwood garden sheds, even, even the cordwood house uh, that we did during workshops. But I'm not, a, I'm not a contractor, I'm a teacher, and uh, I've learned about other kinds of woods in places like South America and, and Australia and New Zealand. Um, I, we, we built on uh, Hawaii's Big Island near Mountain View, uh, which suffers from 200 inches of rain per year. And so we tried a number of woods, Hawaiian hardwoods, and we finally ended up with a wood called Captain Cook Pine. And after we left, our workshop uh, uh, hosts built a beautiful two-story hexadecagon, about uh, almost 4,000 square feet, with a 12-inch, uh, perfectly sufficient for Hawaii, 12-inch cordwood walls, absolutely gorgeous building. In fact, it's featured in my latest cordwood book, Cordwood Building, a uh, comprehensive guide to the state of the art. There's a chapter about uh, hexadecagons, one, and one on Big Island, Hawaii. So, yeah, I've, I've learned about different kinds of woods. Um, Jackie and I use uh, cordwood masonry as a vehicle for travel. We love to travel. You know that because I, I, I told you about this. But uh, 
I used to do a lot of traveling. And, and Jackie and I we wrote a book called The Coincidental Traveler. And one of the pieces of advice we give in there is take advantage of yourself. So we'll go and do corded workshops in Spain or Australia, and uh, you know, people will pay us to do that. And, uh, gee, we get a free trip. And we did a trip once, 60 days in the Southern Hemisphere. We worked about 20 of those six days, and it didn't cost us anything. It was like a free trip. We couldn't stay home that cheaply. Yeah, no kidding. That's a fantastic way to travel. That's actually what I've been doing for the last handful of years as well, taking different natural building contracts and opportunities to assist as a teacher, and that's helped me to get all around the world for the last few years. Yeah. How many years did you say? Because your sound is breaking up a little bit. Oh, um, I guess it's just been a, the last handful of years since I got into natural building. It's about five years ago now. But even before that, I was traveling yep. for a long time doing all sorts of different jobs. I've only just recently switched in, yeah, the last half decade into doing natural building and permaculture design consultations. Good. Now, I know that you have an unusual masonry skill when it comes to moving incredibly large stones. Can you tell us a little bit about the megalithic stone revival? Yeah, it's actually, uh, I wouldn't think of it as... Um masonry i think of it as i call it megalithics it's a uh, it's using compound leverage using mechanical advantage to move very large stones and uh you know it is said wisely whatever exists is possible so the pyramids exist so somebody did that it wasn't done by spacemen um i'll tell you a little story this is i actually took place in uh, in guatemala a place called kirigua i ended up at kirigua uh, it's a Mayan uh, city in, in Western Guatemala, and I wanted to see uh, uh, Stella E, which was a, a 50-ton stone. It stood 30 feet above the ground. It was the largest Mayan stele ever erected, and I wanted to just go see the stone because I'm project director for a 50-ton stone here in, in New Paltz, New York. So we go there, and see, there's this film crew from, uh, what's it called? Some, some program called space uh, aliens alien building or something and their point of view was that people couldn't have done this spacemen must have come and done it so i can't get near the thing to uh, photograph it because these guys are doing the spaceman program but at the uh they're waiting for somebody to interview about the spacemen moving this uh, stone so i get talking with them they said hey, you seem to know a lot about moving these big stones can we interview you so I said, sure, but you might as well know. I don't believe Spacemen did it. That's the story. He says, we like to give an alternative point of view. So I'm talking about how you can mechanically move the stone. And this uh, good-looking young man is standing aside, very quiet, very authoritative-looking, wearing a kind of a uniform, and he's listening very carefully. And at the end of the interview, he comes over to me and he says, excuse me, may I have a word with you, please? Oh, I said, yes, certainly. Well, he's the director of archaeology there at Kerigua. And he says, we have a large Mayan stele that was brought in from banana fields, and we wonder if you could look at it and tell us how we could uh, manually erect this stone. So I said, well, certainly, I'm happy to do that. His name was Jose Crasborn. He's moved to another part of Guatemala now. So Jackie and I looked at the stone. We measured it, uh, figured out it was a 12-ton stone. We told him how he could uh, move it. He was willing to, uh, he spoke Mayan and Spanish and English, so he was willing to translate. He would get about bunch of Mayan people together and we would move this thing. But it never came about. They uh, All we asked for was pay our way down there and we'll work with you and remove the stone. But of course, as you know, 
Guatemala is one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, and they didn't have the money to even pay for us to fly down there, so we never moved that stone. But um, to get back to the compound leverage, though, which I think was the thrust of your question, it is possible using compound leverage to get a 100 to 1 mechanical advantage on moving. Um, to give you an idea, we tra demonstrated transportation and erection of a 20 20 foot long, 20 ton stone here at Earthwood with and never needing more than 16 people and never using more than materials that were available to Neolithic people 5,000 years ago. And that would be wood, rope, we know they had rope, we have the archaeological remains of the rope that they used, and stone. They had no hard metals, so there was no metal bars or levers or anything like that. Wood and stone and rope, that's what you're limited to. And using compound leverage, we were able able to transport and erect Julie Stana, that was the stone's name, with never needing more than 16 people. Well, I'll save you the math. That's each one of us, and we're ordinary sized people, each one of us was responsible for one and a quarter tons. My goodness, that is a lot of weight for somebody to be working on. That mechanical advantage you're talking about right. must be pretty significant. Yeah, well, you can get a, you can, it's easy to get a 10 to 1 or 12 to 1 mechanical advantage with a lever and fulcrum. But you can do better than that. You can use, let the stone help lift itself. If you work to the center of gravity of the stone, I give the example of the seesaw, a common teeter totter that kids play on in the, in the playground. So you got these two kids on either end of the seesaw, and they're rocking up and down on the seesaw. They've got that seesaw at its balance point. If they get off the seesaw, it balances straight across. Now you're a, a, a 10 ton stone. As you work close to the center of that stone, this 10 ton stone is, is, is lying on the ground, and you get it up and, and put it on, on some kind of a transverse member through the middle of it, and you can rock that stone. It's called a rocking stone. Just if you get close to the center of gravity, you can rock it with your hand. But that's dangerous. So you can actually uh, lift one end of the stone using the, the balance point to your advantage. Slip a shim under there, then move it the other direction, take a little more effort, put another larger shim on the other side of the center point, then gradually, Jackie and I can raise a 900-pound uh, 10 by 10 or 12 by 12 timber by ourselves and put it on top of two posts just using a stack of four solid concrete blocks by rocking it back and forth and slipping shims one side of the stack of blocks to the other side. And and it's only really only one of us actually lifts. It. The other one's just thing the shim the timber one way, Jackie will slip a shim in. I'll rock it the other way. She'll slip in a bigger shim on the other side of the center of gravity. And gee, in a half an hour, we've shimmed this thing up eight foot high and we're ready to place it on the uh, on the post. You do the same thing with a big stone. That's fantastic. I'm sure that kind of mechanical advantage would apply to all sorts of other things in building in which people exert an unnecessary yeah. amount of effort. Um, if they just worked to mechanical advantage, they could do with far less of that, uh, that grunt work. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a wonderful... Um, Sticky and I, we, we just like to move big stones by ourselves uh, just to make features around our, our house. And we have a summer camp on Shadowgate Lake, and we've made a lot of uh, nice uh, features there. And uh, we'll move a 1,000-pound stone by ourselves, and set it into place, and it, we just like doing it. It's very empowering. <laughs> I and we have imagine. a lot of, we, we do megalithic work. 
we have women come to our megalithic workshops, and one of them said, she says, I feel so empowered by this that I'm able to move these big stones by myself, just with a few other girls here. So, yeah, we taught megalithics in New Zealand and uh, all over North America. That's fantastic. That's definitely one of the fact, more interesting we're getting hobbies right, I've ever heard of. We're, we're due to go back to what we call Megalithics 101. We keep on pushing the envelope. And right now, uh, Sophia is our, our stone down in New Paltz, New York. And she's 32 foot 5 inches long and by estimate 50 to 55 tons. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't erected Sophia yet. But that's advanced uh, Megalithics. Uh, we want to get to a Megalithics 101, going right back to the beginning of you know row, rowing. You can row a stone. Now, the stones at Stonehenge, it would have been very difficult to have rolled them on rollers from Marlboro Downs 20 miles to the north where they originated because there are some significant hills between Marlboro Downs and Stonehenge. And you cannot roll a stone up a hill, but you can row it up a hill. Row it the way you row a boat. You put continuous fulcrums along the side of the boat, several levers on each side of the stone. Everybody lifts the stone up. They walk forward 10 feet. The stone moves one foot in the other direction with 10 to 1 mechanical advantage. You set it down. You reset your levers. You row it. You row it. You can row up a hill. Picture this. Let's say you've got a 1 in 12 slope, or heck, even a 1 in 6 pitch slope. You raise the stone 6 inches. You walk it forward a foot. You raise it down 5 inches. You've gone up a 1 in 12 pitch slope. Go up six, you raise, you lower it five. The stone doesn't care. So you've got a one in 12 slope. You can not roll a stone with a one in 12 slope. Yeah, that's a great way of looking how to use that mechanical advantage to get uh, things around obstacles that you couldn't do by rolling. In fact, I've got some uh, experience doing exactly what you mentioned. When I used to work uh, putting in trails in national parks in the southwest around Colorado, Utah, and a lot of working in the canyons and in mountainous areas, that's all we did was rock work. And so, yeah, we did a lot of the fulcrum stuff. I know exactly what you're talking about with rowing the stones. That's really the only way to do it when you can't use machinery. Right, right. So now as the founder of the Earth World, or sorry, the Earthwood Building School, you teach a broad range of skills and building techniques. What would be your first bit of advice to someone who is hoping to build their own structure with natural materials? Well, you want to make use of indigenous materials to uh, build with uh, what's uh, what's lying around. <laughs> I, I used to teach. I still I still teach earth sheltered houses, sometimes called housing. Our, our, we, we do earth shelter. We put living roofs on everything we build, and earth was heavily earth sheltered. We lived in a, a place called Logging Cave once, which was earth sheltered house. I remember um, Paul I. Sixon uh, was co-teaching with me from Mother Earth New Echo Village. Most is now 30 years ago. A very young fellow from Belize, and he was like a, a Mennonite, or people with the straw brim caps there, and they, they, they do a lot of building down in Belize, and a lot of property down there. And, uh, and after a 15-minute tirade about making use of indigenous materials, Paul Isaacson has done this 15-minute lecture. A young boy with the, the straw cap, he raises his hand, and he says, Mr. Isaacson, I live down in Belize. We ain't got no indigenous material. We just use let's line around. <laughs> said, well, all right. If that's all you've got, use that stuff. That'll be okay. So, yeah, indigenous materials, but also re recycled materials, too. 
So the plugins uh, available now through places like Craigslist. We we have stuff to garage sales on the roadside. We've got wonderful windows. Oh, here's a good tip for your people. Uh, you want good thermal pane windows? Any decent sized town has a manufacturer of thermal pane windows. Maybe one inch thermal pane with you know quarter inch glass and a half inch inner airspace between the panes. They have a bathroom called the pig pen. And it's full of pieces, for one reason or another, were never picked up by the customer. Somebody went bankrupt. They were cut the wrong size. It doesn't happen very often. It only has less than 100 that they build. But it isn't worth their while. Take these things apart, clean the glass, cut a smaller one from it, so they put it in the back room. So you shop up and you buy these things for 10 cents on the dollar. Well, with a cordwood masonry house, you don't care. You'll make a window buck to fit the window that you buy. You don't care if it's three foot by four foot two, or whatever it is. You make the window buck to fit. So you can get perfectly good, nothing wrong with them, thermal pane windows for 10 cents on the dollar that way. Yeah, that's a fantastic resource. Now, I know you've written extensively on a subject that's of interest to most of the people who are looking to make a transition into a regenerative lifestyle, and that's mortgage-free home ownership. Can you talk briefly about some of the most important steps right. and that someone could take to owning a home without being tied to debt? Yeah. Well, first of all, mortgage comes from the old French meaning death pledge. So know that when you sign a mortgage, you're signing a death pledge. Uh, Jackie and I have never had a mortgage, and we've you know adapted a certain number of strategies to, to keeping that way. To build a house, first and foremost, you have to have a place to build it. You need the land. Um, we've never had a mortgage, but when we bought our land on Murrato Hill for the first time, uh, we paid 20% down and paid the owner an additional 20% for the next four years. And that's the closest thing we ever had to a mortgage, called the land contract. So that's how we bought the land. But by having your own land, now you can use what we call the uh, temporary shelter strategy. That is to say, and this has lots of advantages besides getting you a free shelter. Uh, the temporary shelter is just small, might be um, a six-poster that could later be a sauna or a garden shed or a guest house or something. But it's something that you can build, get your practice on that one. Maybe it's temporary, maybe it's quartered masonry or straw bale or whatever it is. Get your practice in the temporary shelter. Make your $500 mistake there instead of your $5,000 mistake later on in the main building. Move into the temporary shelter. And whatever you've been paying for shelter in your life up to this point, that's finished now. You're, maybe you're paying $500 a month for um, um, uh, rent somewhere, or people pay more than that in some places. So now for a couple thousand dollars, you've built not only a, a good building, Building, which is not, we call it a temporary shelter, but it's by no means a temporary structure. It's a good and valuable uh, structure for sauna, garden shed, guest house, whatever down the road, or maybe maybe your master bedroom or something in your main house. So the temporary shelter strategy gives you a chance to uh, learn the building technique. Use the same building technique that you want to do on your temporary shelter that you're going to do in the main one. Learn the techniques. Uh, screw up on. Instead of the main one, so the temporary shelter strategy is a very positive one. Uh, the, the mortgage-free book goes through various strategies of how to find and buy land. Uh, land's important. It talks about uh, uh, indigenous materials, uh, f finding recycled material. Oh, 
boy, I can't think of uh, all the things. It's a 340 page book, so it's kind of hard to uh, synopsize in, in three minutes. Yeah, for sure. And people can always go to um, what other resources have you got in order to uh, disseminate that information? Well, I might just mention that the Mortgage Free Book is out of print. However, Chelsea Green Publishing Company still keeps it as an as an ebook, um, a Kindle or something. So I, don't, I don't know these things. I don't know what the right terminology is. In other words, you can still get it from Chelsea Green as an ebook, uh, or you can go to um, Amazon or other similar sites and and buy a used copy. Okay. So while we're on that subject, where can people find more information about your book, the uh, Earth Build, or sorry, the Earthwood Building School, and some of the other books that you've written? Okay, uh, our our website is a clearinghouse for everything that you just asked me. It has our, our workshops listed on there. This year we have workshops here in New York in May, July, and September. It also has what's called the Books and Media page. You click on the on the top one. Uh, the website is cordmasonry.com. And click on Books and Media, and all my books and, and a couple of DVDs come out. Even the Stone Circle stuff is in there. Uh, although my book, Stone Circles, is also out of print, I did buy up a lot of copies before it went out of print, and I, I sell Stone Circles and Stone Circles video as well on the website. So go to the website, uh, check out the work shop page we have accommodation here if you come to workshop we have four different guest houses that people can stay at um, we teach uh, also sheltered housing we're doing timber framing this year timber framing for the rest of us in may um, and uh, looks like we're doing near barcelona in spain too uh, so as soon as we get that firm down i'm going to put that on our website with a link to the people in spain in case uh, europeans happen to this and want to go to a workshop. It's June 17th to the 20th, 17th, 18th, 17th to 21st in June near Barcelona. Fantastic, man. That's a huge wealth of resources and information. Thank you so much for taking the time for the interview today. I really appreciate, uh, man, that's a very chock full interview of actionable and practical advice. So I, I, I thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, nice to with you and uh, gee how long are you going to be in Guatemala maybe we can come down and visit sometime that would be fantastic well, there temporarily? Forward, yeah well I'm looking forward to getting in touch with the other people that you've done cordwood buildings with uh, that you mentioned earlier and right now it's a little bit open-ended I've got quite a few projects going right now which are keeping me busy but because you know the the business is going well there's always uh, inquiries and uh, potential projects all over the world so I'm not sure where I'll be at any given time well, it's one of our favorite countries to visit. Jackie and I have been several times to Guatemala. We have a very strong interest in the Mayan civilization. And there's so many natural features in Guatemala that we love to visit. And the people are wonderful, as you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this, is the, this, has been, this is the fourth time that I've come back to this country, and I love it every time. So, yeah, I would recommend it to anyone. But, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely have to do another interview soon. It's obvious that you've got a ton more knowledge that we can soak up and utilize in this podcast. So I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon. Okay, very good. Look forward to it. Hey, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. As always, you can find the show notes and links to all of our other podcasts by going to AbundantEdge.com and clicking under Podcasts under the navigation bar. And if you or someone else that you know is starting a project for natural building or permaculture, 
You can also find a full range of services from design, consulting, and contracting. Also don't forget to sign up for the Abundant Edge newsletter, where twice a month I'll send out updates on projects that I've been working on, as well as educational articles and YouTube videos to help get you inspired on your own projects. Now most importantly, these episodes are not meant to be a one-way discussion or lecture series. I would really like for you to help me to make them into more of a two-way dialogue. Share your comments on the website underneath each of the episodes, or email me at info at AbundantEdge.com. I would love to hear some more of your feedback, especially in the early days of these episodes and starting off this podcast. All of your advice and your ideas help to contribute to make these episodes better. I would love to hear what topics you're most interested in hearing more about, and even some people from the natural building and permaculture world who we would like to hear interviewed. Now, of course, don't forget to subscribe to these podcasts as well as the newsletter that I put out twice a month full of information on the projects that I've been working on, as well as articles and YouTube videos that I've been inspired by. I look forward to hearing from you soon, and I'll see you on the next episode.